0: The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.
1: Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week, we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue, with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, the royal psychodrama continues. But is it fair to blame Meghan for all of this? We'll also talk about China's unpredictable book-cleansing policy. What's it like to be on the receiving end? And finally, Matthew Paris has just applied to fly around the moon. Will he be selected for that first commercial flight? First up. As the impact of Harry and Meghan's interview continues to unfold, our deputy editor, Freddie Gray, looks at how the Hollywood royals have switched from privacy to showbiz in this week's cover piece. He joins the podcast now, together with Tanya Gold, the Spectator's restaurant critic, who writes about her sympathy for the couple in the issue too. Freddie, you talk about this rival royal house that Meghan and Harry have set up and this woke philosophy that underlines it. Can you elaborate on that?
0: I think that the younger royals sort of set off on a path a few years ago when they launched this Heads Together campaign, which there was a lot of hype over, and it seemed to cause some tensions uh, between the kind of older generation and the younger generation of royals, in that the younger royals were uh, encouraged by a lot of people because they were expressing themselves, they were talking about their feeling, they were talking about their mental health. And then at some point, Prince William and Kate seemed to change tack and decided that they didn't want to be doing so much public emoting and Meghan and Harry obviously were rather keen on public emoting, and Meghan in particular, and that caused some tension, there was a struggle, and then they left in a huff. I think it's inevitable now that um, Meghan and Harry are in Hollywood, and what's funny is everybody knew this was going to happen at some point, that they would, that, that once it became clear that they, they, their relationship with the monarchy was broken down, that they would become this kind of rival brand. They've obviously been trying to build it. I don't know if you've looked at their ridiculous archwell website for creative content as tanya was probably about to say the monarchy itself is ridiculous too but now there's a there's a rival newer shinier woke rival over the over the over the Atlantic
1: tanya in your sidebar you don't seem to be the most positive about the monarchy calling them off small flesh gods do you think that this california-based rival house would be more persuasive to you
2: um, well, I, I'm glad that you talked about mental health right at the top, Freddie, because I think mental health is central to this story. I actually think that in the current age, with its continual uh, 24-hour media focus on the royal family, I actually think it can make you incredibly ill. And I think that after the death of Prince Princess Diana, Harry, and, and I, I have to say, I really hate talking about these people you know as if i know them but they are our national soap opera and we we're, we're all forced to talk about them if we know uh, about them as if we know them and have an opinion i think that he was so incredibly traumatized by what we did to him making him walk behind a coffin age 12 to protect his father from catcalls And he said himself that he has PTSD. And I think as soon as he found a woman who would get him the hell out of this crazy system, he took it. And I'm not as surprised as you that they ended up in California. She was, after all, born there and raised there. I don't know if there's a rival house. I'd like to see in England where we had a slightly more grown-up and sensible political system than constitutional monarchy.
1: I'm not sure very many people would have called the interview on, on, on the weekend as grown-up and sensible, though, Tanya. Do you think that a lot of this is brought on by themselves, the courting of media attention? I mean, going to Oprah is not exactly the behaviour of people who want to get out.
2: I think they're incredibly angry. I mean, and I'd be angry. I mean, I wouldn't be so stupid as to marry into the British royal family, but thankfully no one's ever asked me. (laughs) But I think they're incredibly angry about the way they've been treated. I think it was desperately unfair. And even the Queen's former press secretary, when he came on uh, the Today programme the other day, said it's very difficult for people who marry into the House of Windsor. I mean... 70 years ago, Prince Philip was considered to be a dangerous moderniser. The Duchess of Cambridge had to put up with all this nonsense, I mean, really unkind and snobbish comments about doors to manual stuff you don't even want to repeat. And then she sits there and she's silent and she gets ever, ever thinner and she says nothing and she becomes this this perfect little doll and everybody is happy. And then here comes Meghan, who I think is, you know, really very guileless and had no idea what she was getting into, as, as none of them ever do. I think you can't possibly imagine... You just think it's attention and it's and it's money. Of course, I'm just imagining what it must be like and, and, and jewels and everything's lovely. When, as she said the other night, you can't leave your house. And everything you do is reported on by the tabloid newspapers in, in, in a way that I think is really utterly consuming. Pieces for, pieces against. And I think she's very angry. Um, Freddie, uh, Meganus garless
0: Yeah, I'm not sure about Garlis. I I don't really know. But I think that you know, at the risk of sounding like Piers Morgan, it's hard to feel. Sorry, sorry well, there, for there's these a vacancy, Fred. There's, there's, <laughs> it is hard to feel sorry for these people because yes, of course, the monarchy, the intrusion on your privacy, is cruel. It's a difficult life in some ways, but it's also you know, if you if you want to sort of do a sort of league table of people feel sorry for, I think the royals come should come pretty low down. And, I, you know, I can't really do anything apart from laugh at their self-pity. Pit, self I mean, the a moment that hasn't really been talked about um, enough, I think, is when Meghan said that she thought other people could understand what she went through because of lockdown, because people have now had the experience of being locked in their homes. They know what life is like for her. And, I mean, for her to sort of say that with a straight face, just as she compared herself to The Little Mermaid with a straight face, shows you there's something wrong with these people. They're delusional. And it's, it's not their fault. They've gone, they've gone a bit mad because celebrities do go mad and they're completely divorced from, from reality. And it's, it is sad and it is the monarchy's fault because the monarchy has to do this delicate dance between celebrity and, and being an institution. But I don't think we should suddenly start feeling sorry for them and I don't think we should view sort of Oprah world uh, as, a, as a good answer to the monarchy.
1: Well, Freddie, one interesting part about your, of your piece was that you list examples of previous public displays of royal emotion.
0: That, well, it's, I, it's really interesting because well, f- there was Fergie in 1996 who gave an interview with Oprah, and I watched it after I watched the, um, the Megamon because I'm that tragic. And it was amazingly similar. I mean, if you take the race element out of it and the talk of suicide, it was almost Oprah exa- asking the same questions, almost the same sort of format in setup. And so you you realise these things, you know, each time one of these royal revelation bombshells happens, we all pretend that this has never happened before and that Windsor's murder has been has been breached. But it's just, it's not true. It happens all the time. And it's an important dynamic of monarchy. I think what's changed slightly with Meghan and Harry is that they are on both sides of it now because they are going to be content creators. And they see themselves as a media brand in a way that probably Diana didn't or or Fergie didn't.
1: Tanya, I found your piece really interesting when you talked about the American-British culture clash. Can you talk a little bit about that and how much you think that's playing into the whole saga?
2: You know, as I said, I'm, I'm really nervous about you know, trying to take them apart as people and trying to offer... You know, in this way they're good, and in and in, and in that way they're good. Because I, I think it's part of the whole sort of sorry dance that we have. We have these people up there, and we're obsessing about them. And I thought it was very interesting, Freddie, when you said that you don't feel sorry for them because.
0: No, I do feel. I do feel sorry for them. I just don't feel sorry for them. You know, as sorry for them as say I feel sorry for Uyghurs in China. I think I sh- I, we should try and feel more sorry for people who are really suffering uh, than we do for 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 people like Meghan Harry. My heart is so magnanimous. I'm capable of pity for. For everyone,
2: even Meghan and I, I, I've known that since I met you. Do you know what? I'm not going to say that it was harder for Meghan. I mean, look what happened to Princess Diana. So I'm, I'm not going to st- start taking Meghan's character apart. You know, she was an actress and she was a, callig- a, a calligrapher, you know, and she fell in love with this guy. And I don't want any of this to be my business. I just want a president who we can kick out after... Um, after eight years.
1: Well, Tanya, let's talk about that. Am I right in thinking that you're a Republican? And does this whole thing make you more of a Republican? Yeah, I'm a
2: Republican for lots of reasons. And this week, my main reason is because I think it's cruelty to royalty not to be, not to be a Republican. My favourite example is when Queen Caroline banged on the doors of Westminster Abbey to try and get into the coronation of her husband, George IV. There's a lot of continuity in, in, in royal brides being very unhappy and, and sometimes unstable. Do I think this is going to harm the monarchy? I just don't know. We've never toppled off this pin. And the most important thing is that we're incredibly interesting and I th- interested and I think the statistics are quite stable, aren't they? The number of people who would like there to be a monarchy change very, very uh, little, though whether once we have a new monarch, I don't know if that will, that will be the same.
0: I mean, I'm interested in this idea that the monarchy is cruel because I think it is cruel mm. in many ways, but I also I think it's worth saying that Oprah is cruel. I mean, she, is, she is effectively doing sort of public forum psychiatry on vulnerable people. And when you went watching Meghan and Harry, I'm no psychiatrist, I don't know what I'm talking about, but it did seem to me they are unbalanced, unhappy people, and we are invading their private and We're all doing it. But I, but I don't think we can sort of say that monarchy is this horrible cruelty and then that, that, that sort of by sharing their feelings on Oprah, they've suddenly been... Relieved of the burden, they're just giving themselves another. You know,
2: I'm no fan of of Oprah, but you you know, Oprah is not part of the constitutional monarchy. She doesn't make laws. She doesn't stand between me and what I consider to be a sensible form of government. I'm not a fan. Is she exploiting them? Probably, yes, she is. But I have no stake in that.
1: But Freddie, I guess the difference is that Meghan and Harry signed up for this Oprah interview, whereas people are born into the monarchy. And you know, I thought Harry's interview when he said that his dad and his brother were trapped. It is a institution that people are born into rather than have a choice of whether or not they are a part of so is it is it time to abolish it?
0: I mean I don't think we should abolish the monarchy because of Meghan and Harry whether the monarchy is is sustainable in a fiercely democratic age I'm, I'm not sure I think the queen has managed to sustain it because whereas her progeny have um, sort of often had these psychodramas and thrilling titillating tabloid stories and so on she's always managed to keep away from it and the sort of balance between her and her children means that it's been sustained but i just wonder when she dies will there be that unifying figure in monarchy i don't know i don't know i don't really have any strong feelings pro or anti-monarchy i'm afraid i am very interested in what tanya said about americans though and monarchy and that it's true that often americans are just being polite when they're, when they're pretending to be interested in their monarchy, because actually they think monarchy is a ridiculous concept. Isn't that right? Isn't that what you think, Danny It's not, isn't
2: it? Because they, they delightedly threw the monarchy out and then instituted something very like it. I mean, they're, they're busy building their own you know, great feudal houses, aren't they? And the Trumps and the Clintons and the, you know, and, the, and, the, and the God knows what. I don't think the American response to the interview, which was across the board appalled, has any influence on British people.
0: But it is interesting that I think the the way Brits think about Americans and the monarchy, we always think either Americans are obsessed with us, you know, and they they just love to have the idea of the monarchy and class and all that stuff. Or we think, oh, they hate us and we think we're patriarchal racist. But the thing is, most Americans don't think about the monarchy at all. And it's interesting that this Oprah blockbuster thing got 19 million views in America. The Super Bowl gets 98. Something. So it's, it's, it's a sort of passing celebrity interest story in America. And I think we should not try and deduce whether brand Britain has been harmed by it because of one stupid TV show.
1: Thank you, Freddie and Tanya. Next, what does Dante's Inferno and Winnie the Pooh have in common? Both have fallen victim to China's censorship. Author and Dante scholar Ian Thompson recounts his experience of trying to publish in China in this week's issue and joins the podcast now, together with China expert and former diplomat Kerry Brown of King's College London. Ian, tell us about how your book on Dante recently fell foul of the Chinese Communist Party. Well, I'm not sure
3: that it fell foul of the Communist Party as such. I got an email from the publishing house in Beijing to the effect that um, they couldn't publish my book in Chinese translation unless certain cuts were made and these cuts were requested by an organization called the Institute for World Affairs which I think is part of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences and they are based in Beijing I think but from what I can make out it's a fairly amorphous organization with multiple research bases uh, in major universities and academic institutes across the country. And I think that what they do occasionally, clearly, is to make sure that books that are coming in from the West have been sort of properly cleansed um, and that they are therefore suited to uh, a Chinese market. But um, my amazement and my great sort of pleasure in some ways was to think of Dante, this 700 year old medieval Italian poet, still uh, being able to annoy people as he did in his own day.
1: And they took out some parts of your book. Can you tell us what they took out? What was the offending part?
3: Yes, they took out about 20 pages on Dante's less than flattering portrait that he gives in uh, The Inferno, the first uh, volume of his book, The Divine Comedy. They took all of those um, parts on Islam and, uh, and Dante's relationship to the Prophet Muhammad out. They also removed sections on the Reformation, Dante is often seen as a sort of proto-typical reformist uh, Reformation figure, not least because he condemned a number of popes to hell. Uh, And they also took out um, all references to homosexuality. One of Dante's um, mentors, Brunetto Latini, is condemned to hell in the Inferno, probably because he had sinned against nature, meaning that he was um, gay. But Dante actually sympathizes with him in um, this portrayal of the book. And I I guess that um, any um, commentary on homosexuality that doesn't conform to the party line on same sex relations would have to go from my book. So at the end of it, there was not really very much left. And I refused permission for them to publish it. I was surprised. It seemed overzealous, even by the standards of other authoritarian states.
1: Kerry, how do you interpret this incidence? I mean, do you think that as Ian alludes to, is it just censors being overzealous rather than representing government policy? Or, I mean, why, why is it that these particular parts on homosexuality, reform, uh, Islam, fell foul?
4: Well, I understand that there's sort of broad guidelines, and they are extremely broad guidelines that are issued from uh, the propaganda department of the Communist Party. So it's a Communist Party entity, and then it goes through levels. I mean, the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences is the top think tank in inverted commas. And it has about 4,000 researchers, so it's vast. And so this institute that uh, you referred to, uh, I mean, is obviously part of that network. And I think people are very risk-averse now. Under Xi Jinping, the costs of, you know, making a mistake have gone up. So I think it's right that it's probably not that this book would be remotely problematic to publish. It's probably that uh, there's a real resistance within the whole bureaucratic system to making any risks at all. On kind of homosexuality, I mean, the party, I think quite a few years ago made a big change and, you know, it used to have this ridiculous position of regarding this as almost like a sort of mental illness. And now that has been completely, you know, gotten rid of. And obviously, uh, you know, the position of the party is uh, publicly more enlightened. But I think the issue really in the kind of Xi Jinping era is that there's um, since, since 2015, there's been this insistence on loyalty. Xi Jinping went to the state news agency, Xinhua and CCTV, as it was called then that year, and said to journalists and other media figures, you've got to be loyal. And loyalty can mean lots and lots of things. I guess for these people, loyalty means just taking absolute preventive, you know, precautionary measures which go way beyond what they probably would remotely need to.
1: Are they right to be worried, Kerry, when it comes to, I mean, obviously, under Xi Jinping, the country has changed in terms of its approach to a lot of things. But are these censors imagining the problems that could be coming down the line? Or do they have real examples to say, actually, this person did fall foul, and therefore that's why we're not going to do it that way? It's hard
4: to think of any. I mean, in the 1990s, I remember when I lived in kind of a remote provincial part of China in Inner Mongolia, I remember the Xinhua bookshop there had vast amounts of material that was being translated. I mean it had a translation of Finnegan's Wake which must have been an amazing feat for someone to do. It had a series which translated every single major work by a Nobel Prize for Literature winner. I mean the most obscure works in Russian and you know most of these figures are obviously forgotten now and there seems to have been a complete kind of turning back on that and I think that's Not because this particular literature is a problem. It's because of an attitude to the outside world, which is we take your stuff on our terms now. We are a big, major country. We don't have to suck everything up you give us. We can actually take your stuff and actually to some point we can remake it. I think it's that attitude that frames things.
1: What's also concerning, Ian, is the example that you give of this happening beyond Chinese borders. You talk about this German children's book that has also been pulped. Can you talk about that a little bit more?
3: Yes. Um, my feeling was, after I received notice of these cuts that were to be made to my book, was that China's rigorous and often rather kind of, it seems from the West anyway, uh, overly paranoid sort of stance in censorship becomes all the more disconcerting when. Chinese diplomats successfully apply their own standards of censorship to, um, you know, outside their own borders. So, this was uh, a children's book that was published, or going to be published by a Hamburg publishing house called Corona Rainbow uh, for Anna Moritz. And it suggested there, I think, that the coronavirus started, you know, in Wuhan. And that was enough for pressure to be put on this publishing house to pulp or copies of the book, which is in fact, what's happened. And it would seem, you know, depending on which way you look at, the, at it, that this could be you know, construed as, if you like, for Beijing and its campaign to deflect blame for the pandemic, assuming it did start in China. I mean, the other thing that I think might be said here of some interest is that the Institute for World Religions, which insisted on these cuts and the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences which pulls rank over at this institute, I think, have probably no jurisdiction over publishing. Um, I would have thought that falls under another body called the General Administration of Press and Publication, who have been, I think, from talking to a friend of mine in Beijing, notoriously strict of late in terms of distributing um, foreign books in mainland China. One of the extraordinary things about the censorship of my book is that There are five, to my knowledge, Chinese language versions of Dante currently available. And yet uh, most of the material that I was asked to delete from my book uh, exists in footnotes and annotations to these books. So in a sense, the uh, question is, why bother?
1: Kerry, box ticking from middle ranking officials.
4: I think it's more a mentality of they just do it because it's a proof of some kind of prowess. They do it because they can. And I think uh, it's a nationalistic time in China. And I think uh, it's not bad for anyone to demonstrate their nationalistic credentials, as, as, as you know. And I think this is one of those strange kind of... It doesn't seem important, but it's one of those strange manifestations of this, you know, the China that can say no. <laughs> I mean, just couldn't be more kind of, you know, pushy than to say no to Dante, right? I, I mean, you know, this is one of the great... Iconic figures of uh, kind of Western literature. I mean, I think that's that psychology figures a bit. I don't know also to be kind of very crude whether also it's it's a British involvement here. And at the moment, uh, you know, Britain is in the doghouse. I mean, historically, we've been in the doghouse for like many, many decades. So it's not like we're unfamiliar with the doghouse. But now we're we're back there. And, i mean these are also things you know you saw the british ambassador to beijing this week caroline wilson um you know being hauled into the ministry of foreign affairs because she had put out a you know kind of uh wechat on the kind of bbc having their you know kind of flexibility in china revoked uh, and this was sort of framed because the china global tv network had been their license had been revoked in london so even these areas which seem to be ones normally you wouldn't think would be impacted on this they have been you know they've been dragged into this
1: Kerry finally i mean it's a perilous time for china at the moment on the on the world stage it's a bit of a watershed moment i think you probably agree what impact does you know just instances where Western authors like Ian have has experienced coming up against the Chinese authorities. What impact does that have on China's soft power globally? I mean, do you think that this is a time when China will be encouraging more cultural exchanges rather than what seems to be shooting itself in the foot?
4: Well, I mean, it may be shooting itself in the foot internationally, but domestically, I don't think this has much of a negative impact. I think that's the problem. The divergence between domestic uh, audience and what they want to see and the international audience is very great. So, I mean, I think for Xi Jinping's leadership, you know, domestically, their messaging is very strong. They've managed to conquer in their own eyes the COVID-19 crisis in a way that has been seemingly more, you know, effective than uh, the outside world. And so I I think we shouldn't think that they think their soft power has been a failure. Domestically, I think the government feels it's riding on a crest internationally well I mean at the moment it's choppy but I think they take a longer term view so there is a mismatch between those two perceptions.
3: One of the interesting points here is to do with Islam absolutely because Dante in the Divine Comedy subjects the prophet Muhammad to the most appalling sort of um, punishment in canto 28 he is split from end to end so that his entrails dangle out amid excrement he is punished not as the founder of Islam but as a sower of discord. And you know what I'm interested in here is that even though Beijing is not known to be particularly tolerant of China's what 22 million strong Muslim minority, uh, even unflattering portraits of Islam are not encouraged in the People's Republic of China today. And that's why 20 pages on Islam were removed from my
1: book. Thanks, Ian and Kerry. If you enjoyed that discussion on China, do check out my Chinese Whispers podcast too. You can find it every other Monday on the Best of the Spectator channel. Finally, hundreds of thousands of people have applied for the first commercial flight around the moon, planned by Elon Musk. Our columnist, Matthew Paris is one of them. He's on the podcast now to explain why, and with us is the Spectator's commissioning editor, Mary Wakefield. Matthew, tell us about this competition that you've entered.
5: It's not exactly a competition. It is that uh, this extremely wealthy Japanese billionaire has bought nine seats on um, the first commercial return flight to the moon and he just wants to find nine people in the world whom he will sponsor to go and uh, we are asked first, invited first, to join the list of would-be astronauts. So I've joined that list and I've had (laughs) <laughs> an emailed reply with a picture I to join. I had to send them a, an image of myself with a picture of myself in a spaceman's outfit with a little Union Jack on, on my, my lapel saying, uh, you know, welcome to the waiting room, basically. I understand that hundreds of thousands of people are in the waiting room and I'm in, I'm in there with them. I don't know what happens next, but they promise to be in touch within the next few weeks,
1: which I thought was extremely fast just to be narrowing people down. And, and this is Elon Musk's Starship, is, is that right? And it, it will be leaving in a few years' time.
5: It'll be leaving, in theory, in uh, twenty twenty three. It's a seven day journey to the moon and back in uh, Elon Musk's Starship. He wants to go into space travel commercially, and this is his his maiden flight, so to speak, and. And this kind Japanese entrepreneur whose surname I cannot pronounce has agreed to pay for nine of us. He, he says he wants creative people. I don't know if being a, a hack journalist is, is creative. What do you think, Mary?
6: I think it's very creative and I think um, I'm proud the spectator served as, as an advert. Hopefully he'll see the piece and, and give you a special place on the ship.
5: <laughs> I, I put a bit in my Times diary this morning too, so hopefully it will come to somebody's attention.
6: I, I just wanted to say, Matthew, how impressed I am, genuinely, because I think a lot of the time, so space stuff feels like fantasy or science fiction to us, doesn't it? But this is actually real. You know, the whole project is real. The whole potential, as you say in your column, the whole need for space is real. The potential value to the species is real. So it's sort of a joke. And it's also extremely, extremely serious, isn't
5: it? Well, yes, and I, I don't want to be pompous, but the idea that we are able to travel in space between planets in the end, not not just or, or even mainly to the moon, may be enormously important to mankind in the future. So this is not a, a sort of adventure holiday thing that I think Elon Musk, who's an, an eccentric individual, driven, I think, in the end, not mainly by profit, although he has become... Immensely rich, but driven by some idea of the progress of humanity, it's, it's something I'd be pleased to be part of. Exactly.
1: Mary, would, would you go on this trip? No,
6: and that's why I'm so, you know, I'm um, impressed with Matt. For me, it's been my five-year-old saying to me, you know, they, yes. they all learn about dinosaurs. And so you cannot avoid the fact of the devastation caused by an asteroid hit. And it, it becomes increasingly real the more he asks about, you know, what would happen if another meteorite hit the Earth and you, and you realise that potentially in the future we are going to have to do something about this. It's not a, it's not a fantasy. We might have to become an interplanetary species. And I wanted, to, I wanted to ask Matt, actually, you know, I'd say 10 years ago or so, it was very hard to get anyone interested in this. Newspaper editors would sort of scoff as if this was fantasy. Why do you think people are so reluctant to confront the reality of the need for space or the romance of space missions?
5: Oddly enough, I think it it's... Um paradoxically, due to the genre of science fiction and the word fiction. In science fiction, we we have read about a space-travelling future ever since H.G. Wells. And so we have firmly categorised it in our minds uh, as being in the realms of fantasy. Science has now caught up and it isn't in the realms of fantasy any longer. But I think there's quite a drag. I mean, we, it's it's quite a while since uh, we sent men to the moon and there is now a, 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 an international space centre out there in orbit and people go out there and they, they return. But I think in, in the public's mind, it's still slightly romantic and slightly fantastical. Uh, but I think that's going to change.
6: Do you think people are frightened? I mean, I'm speaking for myself, really. You know, the whole enormity of space and <laughs> existential threats... Do you think sometimes it's just easier not to think about it?
5: It is easier not to think about it. I I read the other day so, someone saying there are two possibilities we are alone in the universe or we are not alone in the universe either of them is is equally extraordinary
1: and terrifying.
5: Yeah. No.
1: (laughs) Mary, you've written before about the lag that Matt was talking about. So, you know, it's been decades since man first landed on the moon, yet we're not drinking in galactic cafes or anything like that. Do you think it's picked up pace in the last 10 years, not just in public opinion, but also in the progress? And how much of that is down to eccentric individuals like Elon Musk?
6: I think a huge amount. I mean, obviously, you know, a huge amount of technology came out of the first out of the moon mission, didn't it? You know, a whole sort of Silicon Valley and the silicon chips and that sort of thing. There has been a lag. I think, I can't, I I honestly don't know why, you know, our space missions were dropped and Heath was sort of antagonistic, wasn't he? Perhaps it was all seen as unrealistic and Silicon Valley's perhaps done quite a lot to re-engage us with the need for the romance of technology, let's
5: say. I do think one man has been very important and that is uh, Elon Musk. No other name comes to my mind in the way that his does, as someone who has um, engaged practically uh, with turning these things into a reality and who's talked about a commercial side to it and indeed is already involved in a commercial side. He supplies food, equipment and, and now now passengers to the International Space Station. No one else really, I think, has understood that if this thing is to become a reality in the everyday sense... It has to depart from huge missions by governments and government scientists and move into a, a different realm.
1: Matt, are you worried about the, the speed with which this is happening? You write in your piece that all three test rockets for the starship have blown up and yet this is talking about in two years' time you'll be going on this trip.
5: Yes, yes, I am a little bit worried, <laughs> worried about that. I watched rather nervously his third attempt to land a, a space, space rockets had been landed before, but nothing like this size. And his third attempt in Texas uh, a couple of weeks ago. And um, it was so wonderful when it did land. And then <laughs> several seconds later, it it blew up. But that was actually, I, I'm not, I'm not a spokesman for Elon Musk here, although I think semi-humorously, his people reported it as an Unscheduled rapid disassembly of the rocket uh, I, I i I did rather feel for him and I, but, but I do accept that it was nothing to do with their landing uh, arrangements it was entirely due to a fuel leakage, so I mean that that Lots of early flights crashed. Teething, um, lo- teething
6: problems. Yes,
5: yeah. tea, exactly. Teething problems. It's like Brexit in so many ways, I, guess, I yes, think.
6: Yes, exactly. Although it's been going rather well, I think, recently. Um, <laughs> Matthew, do you worry that Elon's not going? I saw the interview with him and um, Isaku Miyazawa and he sort of looked a bit sketchy about it. He said, I think I might, oh, well, maybe I'll go. And I thought,
5: oh, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I wondered about that, Mary. It was exactly what I thought. Is Is he coming? The honest answer, which he's probably not able to give, is that there is an element of risk to this, which he, as, in a sense, the guiding intelligence behind all this, is not prepared to take. Otherwise, we we lose the guiding intelligence. We're guinea pigs, basically. I I don't mind seeing myself as a a guinea pig. And anyway, I'll be 75, I think, when I go. (laughs) I mean, how many years left do I have? My family, the men, don't live all that long. Mid-80s, so... You know, I'd, I'd, I'd trade eight the eight last years of my life, which would probably be plagued by gout and, 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 and swollen legs and whatever you get when you get old. I'd trade those eight years for the glory of um, going out with perhaps literally a bang.
6: Yeah, it would be amazing. Um, Matt, would you go to Mars, I wondered?
5: Oh, I'd love to. In fact, I have already offered, but not, not that it's been noticed in writing, we... We'll quite soon be able to send uh, a person to Mars, but it's going to take longer before we could bring them back again, you know, s- send the kind of thing that can land and then take off and return. So uh, you would need a volunteer for someone to go to Mars and die on Mars. Well, I mean, what a, what, a, what, what an epitaph. To, to, I was born in Johannesburg and I died on Mars, the first human being. I'd be the first gay man on Mars as well.
1: That'd be awesome. <laughs> a wonderful
6: tombstone wouldn't
1: it <laughs> yes mary and matthew thank you very much and that's it for this week pick up the issue now to read all of the pieces discussed as well as rod liddle on harry and Meghan, richard dawkins's diary and julie birchall on Joyce of being a mean girl i also appear in this week's school supplement where i've interviewed a chinese tiger mum and give you her best tips thanks for listening and join us again next week